0: Now, I wonder how many of you this morning woke up with hearts full of joy and praise for God. I hope there were some. (laughs) I'm sure there are. Um, Some of us probably found it rather harder. Um, Maybe you found you woke up just wanting a cup of coffee, or your mind's wandering, your emotions a little flat. I did not. My, my dad's been very ill this week. It's been a difficult week. I've been weary and tired. Um, and so, praising God doesn't come naturally at a time like that. Even though if you did, even if you woke up full of praise and had a wonderful time this morning praying to God, this psalm tells us, whatever state we're in, how we are to stir up in ourselves that joyful praise for God that comes so slowly to us. You'll see the title at the top of the psalm. It says it's a psalm of David. So it's probably by, perhaps, about David, the great king, the great praise leader of Israel. And he's writing this psalm to remind us, or to show us, how to call ourselves to praise God in a way that reawakens that love and trust and praise. So he's showing us what he did. He, it's a call to praise reminding us of the, the wonderful truth of God's steadfast love for us, that love that will not let us go, in a way that helps us to praise him. Now, if you're not a Christian, uh, or if you're not sure whether you're a Christian or not, you might not immediately be desperate to learn how to feel praise God with a full heart. But it's still a really instructive, interesting psalm to look at, because in the process of thinking about these things that Christians thank God for, praise God for, we see truths that are really at the heart of the Christian faith, some of fundamental truths. So please do... Listen in, and I hope you'll discover for yourself just how good our God is. We're going to look at the Psalm in four separate pieces. Firstly, verses 1 to 5, which which are a call to praise the God who loves us personally, individually 1 to 5. And then 6 through to 19 are a call to praise the God who loves forever, who loves all his people forever. We'll have a a sort of pause on 17 to 18 and ask who this wonderful love of God we're talking about is for. And then 20 to 22, finally, our fourth part, calling others to praise God for his love. So firstly, that call to praise God, the God who loves us, who loves you, one to five. When we struggle to pray or to worship, or we find our minds wandering as we sing a hymn, it's often best to simply start by reminding ourselves repeatedly what God has done for us. And that's what's happening here. Look at, at the opening words. He repeatedly calls himself to worship. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He's preaching to himself, basically. He's saying, soul, you don't feel like praising God right now, but praise God all the same. He wants his heart and his mind. He doesn't just want to be praising God with his lips, with, just with his words, just as he sings or as he prays. He wants to praise from the very heart of who he is. Praise God. In other words, say how good God is. And he says it repeatedly, you'll see that. Not just once, he doesn't just say, praise the Lord, O my soul. Because sometimes when your heart is cold or flat, it takes a little bit more than saying it once to actually encourage yourself to get going. And he reminds himself why he should praise. He says, forget not all his benefits. In other words, all the things he's done for you, don't forget them. So easy, isn't it, to forget what God has done for us. And so often the reason we are slow to praise God is precisely that. We have forgotten what he's done for us. So he goes through the list. He reminds himself what what God has done for him. Verse 3, who forgives all your sins. It's the most basic of all, really. God has forgiven all my sins, all that's wrong in what I've done and in who I am and in my heart. He heals all your diseases. Now, we don't know, was he looking back to particular prayers for healing when he was ill that were answered? Quite likely. But all the same, he's also someone who knows that for every believer there is a day when every sickness and illness will be healed and done away with. After all, the the prophet Isaiah would later say when he was talking about the one who was pierced for our transgressions, Jesus Christ, that with his wounds we are healed. And then he goes on, he says, who redeems your life from the pit well the pit is a picture of death. In other words, this is the God who buys you back from death itself and then crowns you with love and compassion. We have the glory. That's the crown is the glory of being loved by God Himself, who satisfies your desires with good things, verse 5, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. This God will satisfy you with the good things that you need in this life. And far more, when he raises you to new life, from death, he will satisfy you with the good things you need forever, and you will then have the buoyant, unfailing strength of a soaring eagle forever. If you are a Christian, you have received each of these benefits from God already, just as David has. And even if your heart is cold, even if you're feeling flat or distracted, remember these benefits. Remember what he's done for you, what he's rescued you from, and what he will do for you in the future. And this isn't just a general truth. This is a real practical piece of advice. When you find it hard to pray, do this literally. Call yourself to praise God just as he does. Remind yourself quite literally of what he's done for you. You know, one of the, some of the teaching that's most influenced how I pray each day uh, comes from the evangelist Rico Tice. Um, I remember he, I was in a teaching session, he ran, and he, he, he finds himself that he's fairly glum by nature, and that He forgets God's benefits very easily. He gets out of bed feeling rather flat. And so he has made over the years a list of the things God has done for him that he keeps in his Bible. And every single morning he reads over those basic things. God has forgiven your sins. God has made you his child. Jesus has suffered for you. And then every morning he gets up, he reads through it, he prays through it, and then finds he can begin to pray better. And it works over the years when I've done something similar, and I try to, always. It's a huge encouragement. You find yourself with more praise and joy in your heart as you remember those wonderful things he's done for you. And the rest of your prayer and worship comes more naturally and flows more easily. Now, the next thing he does in this psalm, though, if we go back to 6 to 19, is a call to praise the God who loves everlastingly, the God who loves all his people. Because he's prayed through the benefits God has given to him for himself. He's praised through what God has done for him personally. What will help him praise with even more enthusiasm, even more joy, is to remember and to see that this isn't just individual or random. This is the way God is. If he looks at what God has done down through the ages, he sees this is what God is like. This is what God is always like. God is full of loving kindness that never ends. And he wants to remind himself of that so he can praise with a whole heart. And so he looks in three different ways, even in this section, six to eight, he praises particularly for his everlasting mercy. 9 to 13, his everlasting forgiveness, and 14 to 17, his everlasting compassion. So 6 to 8, his mercy. David knows God has rescued him personally, but he looks back and he remembers this is what God has always been like. He has always rescued his people like that. He looks back to that great story of the Old Testament, the Exodus, where through Moses, the Israelites were rescued from their terrible slavery in Egypt. And that showed, verse 6, God's righteousness and justice for the oppressed. This is what God is like. He is not a God who will stand for oppression. He is a God who loves and has mercy. And he looks back, too, to what God said to his people after rescuing them, verse 7. You know, they rebelled against him pretty much straight away. They weren't great at following him. And it says, the, the Lord is gracious compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That was God's word to Moses, and David reminds himself of that. This is what our God has always been like and will always be like. His love is shown in his forgiveness, too, in 9 to 12. He will not always accuse. He won't harbor his anger forever. He doesn't punish us. He doesn't punish his people in the way they deserve. Because in verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? It's a long way. We can't measure it, we can't conceive it, and that's exactly the point. That's how great his steadfast, committed, and unbreakable love is. And so verse 12, he takes our sins far from us. He doesn't just ignore them. He gets rid of them. He removes them as far as the east is from the west, it says. How far is that? And of course, David could only see how that would happen in a shadowy sort of way. But we, after the New Testament, we know exactly how Jesus died to carry away those sins, to take them on his shoulders, to take our sins away from us from ever. That forgiveness is something that God has given his people all through the ages, and then in 13 to 17, God's love has always been shown in his compassion. God is full of the compassion of a father, verse 13. Uh, why is that? It's for a slightly surprising reason. He remembers that we are dust. If you've been to a funeral, um, you'll have heard the words, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I've said those words A good few times over the last couple of years. When God looks at you, he knows you. He sees what you're like. He sees you don't deserve him, but he also sees you need him. He sees your fragility. He sees your weakness. Verse 15, you know, we we pass away as quickly as grass or flowers under the hot sun of Palestine. Or, you know, maybe you've sometimes left a plant in a hot porch or a greenhouse without the door open. Come back to find it brown and dead. That's the picture. Life is full of wonderful things. And then the moment it's gone. And it says, its place remembers it no more. Uh, I wonder if you know who lived on your street 70 years ago, in your house, perhaps, if your house is that old. We certainly don't. Um, And the reality is that in 70 years, I'm guessing, no one will remember I lived where I live now either. Some of you will know, I know, what it's like to lie in a hospital bed and realize you're just not that far from death. It could, wouldn't take much. That's our fragility. And God sees it. And verse 17, it says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Now that means, of course, that all through the ages he's been had that love to each and every person, but it means more than that. His love for you will never die. It will never weaken. It will never fade, and it will never weary. Everything we see around us will crumble away. You know, one day this church building will be nothing. But his love for you will still stand. And so we don't have time to go into the way Jesus explains this in the New Testament. That's what our hope is based on. Jesus makes it very clear, the reason we will live forever is that God's love for us lives forever, and he lives forever, and what he loves, he will never let go. When we cling to him, when his love holds on to him, Glasgow itself could be forgotten, and this age can pass away, and we will live with him because of his love that lasts forever. That is a reason to praise him. That is a reason to be thankful for him, to him, and to love him. Now, thirdly, we need to ask a question at this point in the psalm, who this love is for. I particularly see the answer really in 17 and 18 Will he hold on to you and me with that everlasting love? That's a question worth knowing the answer to. And the psalm actually says it quite clearly. Verse 11, first of all, those who fear him. Verse 13, those who fear him. Verse 17, those who fear him. And that seems rather strange to us, doesn't it? You know, this is a prayer about love and forgiveness and compassion, and it's talking about fear. Isn't fear to do with punishment? 1 John. And it's easy for us just to rush over this, to explain it away, just to say, oh, it's just talking about being reverent, reverence, awe, perhaps. But there is more to it than that, and there's always more to that in the Bible about fear. There are two kinds of fear in the Bible. One is, I suppose, the kind we're used to, bad kind, the kind of fear that has a note of anxiety in it. You know, you just don't know whether things are going to go badly. You don't know what the doctor's going to say. You don't know whether that slightly scary person at the bus stop is going to come up to you or not. And then there's the good fear, which is pretty much only ever really possible with God himself. The fear of someone totally reliable and totally loving, and yet scarily awesome. I I had a teacher at school, Mr. Waller. Um, I owe him a rather lot, actually. He was an amazing teacher. He was one of those teachers, and I'm sure you had one like it, who never really had to raise his voice. You probably have the other kind as well, the kind who have to shout and scream to get their way, and you never quite know if they're going to fly off the handle, and you never quite know if they're going to be fair. Mr. Waller was not like that. Um, there's something so special about him that when the school disciplinary system failed and the deputy head couldn't deal with the toughest troublemakers in the school, really balshy, nasty, didn't want to be around them. They just send them to Mr. Waller. And as soon as they came into his presence, they were like little lambs. You know, he was one of those people, he'd never had to raise his voice. I mean, it helped that he was six feet wide, but... <laughs> you could rely on him. You could trust him totally. But you didn't mess with him. You just, nobody ever thought of messing with him. It's a little picture, isn't it? That there is a kind of fear... A kind of attitude towards God that just in a way is that we would never want to mess with this God. We would never want to put at risk these wonderful things that he offers to give us. And at the same time remembering, he is the awesome God who commands the armies of angels. The one who made the heavens and earth by a word. We wouldn't want to mess with him. Those who fear him, it says in 17 and 18, are those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. You know, this this psalm has made it very clear that we don't earn God's love by what we do because this is a psalm full of forgiveness. None of us can earn it. But it does say they're those who keep his covenant. In other words, when God made that committed relationship with his people that we talked about with the kids, that unbreakable promise of everlasting love. We want to keep our side of love and obedience to him. Trust him. And they remember to obey his commandments. Not, of course, again, that they keep them perfectly. No, and it doesn't say that those who keep his commandments, it says those who remember to keep his commandments. We fail, perhaps, but we remember. We think on them. We plan to do them. We remember them. We do our best keep him. That is how we aim to live our lives. That's a sign of that real fear of God. If that is us, if we fear God in that way, then the love this psalm talks about is for us. If, if it's not, if we don't have any fear of turning anywhere else, if we don't really care about trusting or obeying him, if we are perfectly happy to mess with him and mess with what he says, then our sins are not taken away. We've rejected his love and we will die like the grass. Our sins will not be removed. So if you don't fear and trust him this morning, then I hope you will take the time today to think and perhaps change your mind. Because if you do, this love, this everlasting and unbreakable love, is yours always. Your sins are taken away and he has become your compassionate father and his love will be from everlasting to everlasting for you now finally in in 20 to 22 when we thank god for what he has done for us we praised him for his goodness and when by remembering what he's done for us we begin to praise more naturally more gladly with more of our hearts we will fairly quickly discover we want other people to praise him too. We want to call other people to praise him too. We want them to not just forsake or form. We want them to feel how good he is. We want them to know just how wonderful, how kind, and how loving he is. And that's what, what David does. He turns outward. And he's not just content with all people praising. 22, he says, praise the Lord all his works, everywhere in his dominion. I want... Everything, everyone, everywhere to praise this God. David says, praise the Lord, all his works. The surprising thing is he, how far he goes. You know, you might expect him to say, and, you know, standing up here, I'm tempted to say, you want to go and tell other people, and you will, absolutely. Absolutely. If your heart is full of praise, you want other people to know God and praise him too. David actually goes a step further. He is going to tell the angels to praise God. Verse 20. Praise the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones, who do his bidding, who obey the voice of his word. There are a couple of hymns based on this psalm. Uh, We're going to sing one of them in a minute, actually. And praise my soul, the king of heaven. Um, All of the hymns that look at this psalm Change round these verses. They think it's a you know. I can't tell the angels what to do. They, so they they change it round and say, "Angels, could you help us to adore God?" That's understandable. I hope the angels do help us to adore God, but that's not what it says here. It says, "Praise the Lord, you His angels." These angels are no picture postcard angels, of course. They're not too fluffy. These are the mighty ones of the heavenly places. God's warrior champions, the opponents of the devil. They are, verse 21, his hosts. In other words, his armies. The angel armies round the throne of God who have been praising God since before the world began. And we, you and me, little me, we are to call them to praise God. They see all of God's splendor, all his glory, all his wonder, all his goodness, his purity, his love. They have known his help and his strength from far before we were born. But you, if you are a Christian, have something they do not know and have never felt. The New Testament, Peter calls it, a mystery into which angels long to look. Through us, Ephesians says, The wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what they don't know is exactly what we've been thinking about all morning. An angel is sinless. They have never needed forgiveness in the way you have. They're also not fragile like us. They've never needed the compassion of God in the way that you and I have. They have never tasted his forgiveness or his patience. They've never felt his gentleness when they are weak and weary, and tired, and teary. So if you know God's forgiveness, his compassion, you have a message for the angels themselves. And one day, you will stand before the throne of God and praise him with them, and your praise, what you can praise God for, will give them fuel for their eternal praise of God. So if you know God's forgiveness, you have a message for the angels themselves. And you too will sing and praise them him through all the ages, and you will be crowned with steadfast love and mercy. You'll be renewed in youth by his goodness. You'll be held by his steadfast love, that love which will not let you go from everlasting to everlasting. And you will call those angels to praise our great God whose love did not let you go. And if those thoughts are enough to call the angels to praise God, then they are enough to call us to when we get out of bed on the wrong side tomorrow morning, desperately needing a cup of coffee. These truths are truths which, if we insist on them, tell ourselves, however reluctant we are to believe it, these are wonderful things that will help us to praise our God, then our hearts will be more filled with praise than they were before. Let's pray. Lord and Father, um, doubtless many of us still feel flat in our hearts. We don't praise you as we should. And the very best of us, Father, don't feel these truths in their full reality. But as we come and sing again, we pray that they would, those truths would be sinking into our hearts, that we would have a real delight in them, a real joy in them. They would feel real to us, that we would know them, not just in our heads, but all through our whole selves.